I'm Rachel Vaughan-Jones and this is the Building Liquid podcast, the show about startups in the drinks world, the founders that are building them and the tipples that have inspired them along the way. Today I'm joined by Annabelle Thomas, who is the founder of Nugnean, an independent organic whiskey distillery on the west coast of Scotland. Annabelle didn't have a background in drinks when she set out to build a distillery back in 2013, very brave, but since launching their first bottles in 2020, Nugnean has not only taken taste buds all over the UK and beyond by storm, but has also achieved that holy grail B Corp status. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I mentioned there in that intro that you didn't necessarily have a background in drinks and you've created what is an incredible brand and we'll get to the liquid a little bit later because I've got a bottle here to try as well. But how did you kind of end up where you are? How did you end up creating the brand? Um, Well, the original inspiration was really the place. It's on my parents' farm on the west coast of Scotland. And I don't think you can really be on the west coast of Scotland and not think about whiskey. So it was always, um, well, we drank a lot of whiskey when we were there. And we gradually started to kind of think about this idea of a small distillery. It was around the time, and this was back in like 2010 sort of time, when craft beer, there was a lot of craft beer around, craft gin was just starting to grow and there wasn't really much happening in Scotch at the time in terms of new brands and new distilleries coming Mm. out. So that was sort of what sparked the original idea, I suppose. But then something more like what you would recognise now as McNean started to form a couple of years later. I went to Isla and did a... um, a little bit of a research trip, if you like, it was a good excuse to drink some whiskey at the same yeah, time. Very good excuse. And <laughs> a lot of the distilleries that I visited there seem to be very focused on the traditional angle, which is kind of the bedrock on which Scotch is built and I think is really powerful. But I also thought, well, maybe there's also room for a brand that is a bit more forward looking and looks at the world a bit differently. Maybe that would be a good thing for Scotch as a whole. And so that's really where the first genesis of what is now McNean came to be and I guess I have been lucky enough to be surrounded by people during that journey who have been able to advise us on the background bits that I lack as a result of not having come from the drinks industry before. And tell me about that. So you've kind of had this idea that's been percolating for a little bit of time. You nip over to Islay, amazing place, great trip for testing out um, various drums. And then you think, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this a go. Like, where do you start? What's day one look like? Well, we actually started while I was still working in my previous role, which was a, a strategy consultant in London thinking it'd be really easy ha ha so my father and I were kind of working on it jointly while both doing full-time jobs and it got to May 2013 and we missed a grant deadline or something and we're like right this is ridiculous it's just not going to work like this either we should just shelve this idea and pretend we never had it or one of us needs to do it full-time so I was thinking of leaving my job anyway so that was sort of the impetus I needed I think um So I guess we'd already been working on it for a while, but day one when I actually left and started working on the distillery more full time, it was all about business planning and fundraising, basically. Putting a business plan together that we could then take to investors and it took us two years to raise the money, um, which was pretty hard going because that is not fun. It's just sales pitch after sales pitch after sales pitch and the hit rate is very low. (laughs) 
So mm. you have to deal with nine out of 10 refusals and somehow motivate yourself to keep going on the one out of 10 acceptances. Yeah. And how did you do that? How do you keep motivated? Well, I was partly helped by the fact that we did we did the fundraising in two stages. We raised 150 grand, which is not very much. You need to build a whole distillery yeah. in the first six months from family and friends. And once we raised that, I felt an obligation to them to raise the rest of it because basically if we didn't raise the rest of it, then that money was sort of going down the drain. Um, yeah. So I think that was a big motivation. Um but around that more on a personal level, I just tried to do things to help my own brain, which I think is personal to everyone, but it's like exercise, get out of the house. So I go and work in other offices of mates who are starting businesses and that sort of thing to try and just keep motivated and keep perspective. Yeah. And I think what people don't realise about whiskey, I guess, compared to some of the other brands that I've had on the podcast is that it's a long time from like building well, starting the idea, building a distillery to actually having a product and any liquid out of the door, right? So you started this journey in 2013. Exactly. And then first liquid was 2020. 2020. 2020. <laughs> exactly. That's a long time. How do you get people to buy into like your idea and your vision when you don't have like a snazzy bottle and amazing liquid to taste? Well, I think that was part, that was most, well, there were two reasons it took us so long to raise the money. I don't actually think two years is that long to raise for a whiskey distillery, but um, the issues were that we had no proof of concept. We couldn't say this is the liquid our distillery can produce. And we hadn't done any of the brand work either, and I'm glad we hadn't in retrospect. And also just because whiskey is really expensive. So we had to raise seven and a half million pounds to build the distillery and then keep us going through the first year, three years of production. And you're raising off a bit of paper with no product. Um, How do you do it? Uh, Write a really good business plan (laughs) and find people that believe in you, basically, because ultimately they're investing in the team at that stage rather than anything else. And did you build a team around you at that stage or kind of just the people that you had in your network to advise you? It, no, we did have a team in the advisory capacity, but not in the working for me capacity. So the key people that we had on board at that stage were Jim Swan, who was our master distiller. So he did the he was responsible for all of the liquid development. And I think he helped give investors confidence that we would produce good liquid because he had amazing pedigree. He'd been associated yeah. with Kilhoman, which was one of the only new small distilleries in Scotland at the time, Cavalan, all these other brands that had produced excellent whiskey at a young age. So that was really good kind of proof of concept, if you like. And then we created an advisory board around us as well with some ex-industry people, which I think really helps as well. And, and was there one was there one moment where you thought, in that kind of journey to getting all the through all of the fundraising like oh my god this is actually going to happen not until we had the money in the bank yeah <laughs> that <laughs> which was wise. which was july 2015 because we were trying to bring three things together as well there was the actual investors who were getting equity in the business but there was also a debt funding package and some grants and getting all of those three to come together was really difficult and yeah until and especially the kind of grant and the debt side less so but private investors it is different dealing with private investors to it is with say a bank when they've made a decision they've made a decision for a bank but private investors can be a little bit more fickle so yeah it was only when we had the money in the bank that I thought this is actually going to happen 
And the first day that you kind of got the distillery up and running, that must have been a pretty special moment. It was. Firing up the stills. <laughs> exactly. When the first liquid came off the stills, that was the best. We had a few false starts before we actually got liquid off the stills because something <laughs> or other didn't work, which was, um, yeah, fun and games. You know, we had a, what did we have? We ran out of chip. I think, to fuel the biomass boiler. The water cooling system got blocked or something. We still don't really know what happened to that. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was a bit stop-start, but I think that's the same whenever you're commissioning a factory. So, I wanted to talk to you about sustainability because I know that that's something that's at the heart of Nicknean and I guess the benefit of starting a distillery kind of in the modern day from scratch is that you can kind of build in those processes and practices that like the big giants you know those old distilleries that are sitting on Speyside that have been there for hundreds of years trying to sort of retrofit sustainable practices isn't necessarily that easy did you kind of always know from the start look we're really going to have to kind of every decision we're making um needs to be one that's kind of all about sustainability yes it was really important to us Phyllis or to me personally philosophically from the beginning to make sure that that was at the heart of the business although I wouldn't want to give the impression that we thought of everything up front because we didn't what I tried to do was think about what are the major sustainability issues in distilling and let's tackle those and we identified three which was the source of energy it's a very energy intensive process and we put in a biomass boiler to tackle that the second was malt it's the major ingredient and it's an agricultural material so that has a material impact on the environment and water and we've got a kind of closed loop natural cooling system but beyond that I didn't have an answer on chemicals because honestly I didn't know there was so there was so much caustic soda used and we have so we used 100% caustic soda for our cleaning from the beginning and then worked on finding a better solution for that which we so we now have an enzyme that does half of our cleaning for us um and packaging as well we didn't have an answer on that either but it was three years away so and actually that was a good thing because the our bottle is 100% recycled glass and that was only brought to the market about nine months before we launched the whiskey so that was extremely lucky timing and actually had we worked on it in 2017 we've had to throw it away and start again with the new bottles so yeah that's a really good point actually I guess things you know, week to week, new things are coming, you know, to light, making things possible to be more sustainable. So I guess brands that are open to making kind of changes and improvements along the way are the ones that can really kind of kind of light the charge for other brands behind them. In terms of consumer facing messaging, how important do you think it is to kind of talk about those sustainability credentials? Because it's always... I think obviously, you know, as they should be, consumers are becoming a lot more conscious, a lot more aware of the choices that they're making. But I'm always wondering if, you know, like five, ten years down the line, I hope that it will just become kind of mandatory for all brands to operate in that way. But where do you kind of feel that line is with sort of educating consumers versus just kind of behaving as a sustainable brand? It's a really interesting question. I think um, two years ago, I would have said, it wasn't something we would talk about that much and we would be talking we really would only want to talk about the liquid and all the interesting things we do around liquid and everything else 
it seems like people are really interested in the sustainability side of what we do. And so we end up talking about it a lot more than we had envisaged. But I'm actually happy about that because I think the more we talk about it, the more it hopefully encourages others to take some steps in the right direction as well, be that within the Scotch industry or outside of it. Um, so whilst it maybe wasn't exactly what I had envisaged, I think that's okay. Yeah, I think that transparency is really helpful, isn't it? Because as you say, other brands that kind of are looking to you guys and other brands who are a bit further ahead in their journey, it's it's kind of a good setting, a good example for them. Um, having exactly. that transparency is really helpful. And I have to ask you about B Corp. Obviously, that's yes. kind of the holy grail. Um, it's great to see so many brands kind of attempting kind of working towards that kind of b corp certification it's great that there are so many drinks brands on that mission i went down to the b corp pop-up um in london actually yes saw your bottles there it's good good moment um and yeah it's fantastic to see how was that process i know that it's quite a challenge um (laughs) any words of advice for people who might be going through that process at the moment um yeah it's really hard yeah (laughs) so yeah I think it's really easy to look at brands who've done it and think oh they did it it must be easy but it's really not we didn't find it easy at all we had two attempts at it um the first attempt we were actually very poorly advised so there's two kind of categories of score within the B Corp accreditation process one is the operational score which is the kind of day-to-day doing business well stuff and the other is called IBM's impact business models. And they're the like, you get, it's basically like bonus points of things you do extra super well, which are relatively unique. And we do lots of extra super well things quite uniquely. And the advice we were given initially is, well, you do so many of that, you get loads of points for that. So don't worry too much about the operational points. So where we were like doing things that we hadn't quite written down, or we were being a bit conservative in our answering, we didn't get to the 80 mark on our operational points and focused on the ibms totally wrong approach um okay it's not kind of in the philosophy of b lab to award certification if you don't meet the operational score and it meant that yeah anyway so we didn't get it the first time around so we took a deep breath (laughs) waited for six months and then started again um this time with better advice and actually hitting the operational points was not that hard we were actually doing most of it and that's what was so frustrating if we just yeah been that little bit more kind of anyway we could have done the first time around um so yes i think that and have patience and if anyone is interested in more detail we've actually written a blog on it so go onto our website and you can see the kind of ins and outs and also who we use for advice and all that kind of stuff but um yeah it's amazing now we've got it we're like yay but at the time we were going through it it was like oh what are we doing (laughs) I feel like that's the sentiment from everyone that I speak to but it must be such a kind of relief to finally get it over the line it makes everything worthwhile but but also I think the other positive is that it genuinely makes you make improvements to the business um it makes you standardize things that are you know that maybe it's all vaguely there but not standard and so on so um yeah i think it is i think it's really positive so you mentioned there the interesting things about the liquid which feels like a good time to (laughs) i'm gonna um do the sound effects i've got some ice here i love the sound effects (laughs) (laughs) um 
So as you can see, I've, I'm already half a bottle down um, and I have enjoyed uh, this neat. I think it's amazing and I can't believe, the first time I tried it I think was at Cocktails in the City. Yes. And I tried it neat and I could not believe how young of a whiskey it was because it's so smooth and it is wonderfully light but it hasn't got any of those kind of harsh edges that you would expect from a, such a young whiskey so I'm going to mix it with soda because I know that that's kind of how you guys suggest yes. serving it um, but talk to me about the liquid I will, I'll pick up on exactly what you were talking about which is its smoothness and its age and then maybe we'll talk a bit about it being organic as well so um, we always knew that we wanted to release a young liquid and that is partly a necessity if you're a young if you're a young distillery yeah. a new distillery um but also because we believed it was possible and this is what a lot of what Jim Swan was about so the way we achieve that is to create a very smooth spirit before it even matures and by doing that you don't need to mature it for as long it's like if you're hanging washing out and you hang out straight you don't need to iron it afterwards yeah sort of that I like principle that. <laughs> <laughs> Because we don't even own an iron, so that we are very <laughs> right, exactly. hanging things out properly. <laughs> exactly. So we do a lot, and actually I, that is a kind of philosophy we hold across everything we do, which is we have a lot of focus on the spirit rather than on the casks, which has, I guess, been the traditional focus of the Scotch industry, how long it's been in cask and what it's been in car, how you know, what kind of cask it's been in. Yeah. Um, I find the spirit part of it really fascinating because there's all sorts of different things going on there and it's not talked about very much. It's not changed very much. So we run multiple spirit recipes through our distillery over the course of the year. Um, the one that you are drinking now is the so-called young recipe. I, it's meant to be matured for a short period of time and drunk young. We yeah. have another one which is called the old recipe, which is matured for a long period of time and meant to be kind of bottled at 10 plus years and then we also run yeast experiments where we use different yeast to create different flavor in the spirit so there's all sorts of different things we play with there and I think that is a really interesting and maybe underexplored part of the scotch flavor profile yeah 100% because I um, think people do get so fixated on maturation is kind of kind of left to the elements a little bit and that seems to be as you say like the be all and end all that gives everything kind of gives it its character but it's interesting to take that approach to um the distillation process yeah exactly exactly and the other interesting element to our spirit is that it is organic and we did that as i said really purely for care of the supply chain i think it's really important that we focus on that as well as what happens in our own operations and the biodiversity and water impact of buying from organic farms is really is really big so we decided to buy 100% organic barley purely for those reasons and in fact people like Jim Swan said don't do it it's an expensive waste of time it'll be a nightmare to work with I wouldn't bother and we really didn't expect any change to the flavor but what we have found is that we think that the kind of viscosity and oiliness that you get in the spirit which also translates to an amazing whiskey and soda comes from that organic barley and the kind of increased richness in any single grain because the yield on an organic field is much lower. So he says to you, no, don't do it. It's going to be a waste of time and a nightmare. And you said, we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> yes, basically. <laughs> um, so he so he was very focused, A, on the cost and B, on the 
he had had experience in other distilleries of the organic grains being very different sizes, which makes it very hard to mill, which then makes it both hard to work with physically in the equipment, but also reduces alcohol yields, which thus makes it even more expensive again, basically. And it's is really expensive but not but only because the price per ton is more expensive actually the quality of grain that we get is very very high and i think it from a practical point of view it works exactly as normal conventional grain works so it hasn't been as bad as he expected although we do pay a lot more for the raw material yeah well it's worth it because you definitely do get that lovely kind of mouth feel and the spirit it's amazing it's yeah as i say the first time i tried it i couldn't believe like it knocked my socks off um exactly and it's interesting to know that that's kind of where that characteristic is coming well from. i wish jim's one very sadly died just before we ran the first spirit off the stills and we've been working with him for at least five years by that point so it was un- well it was sad to lose him full stop and to lose him at that point was particularly sad and to never have had him taste the spirit and have his view on the kind of impact of organic and maybe start to change his mind about whether it was worth it and things. yeah it's very sad um so you talked about working with um kind of industry giant there who had kind of loads of experience and i couldn't let the chat go by without mentioning that you are a woman in whiskey in a what is still male dominated um category how have you kind of navigated that I think people outside of the industry think it's weirder than people in the industry because there are actually lots of women that work in whiskey and no one seems to know about it. Um, And I think if anything, I I think I am sort of able to use it to my advantage, maybe subconsciously in that I think part of the benefit of diversity overall is that diverse people think in diverse ways. And maybe that means that I am thus, as an organisation, we think a bit differently sometimes about some things to the way other people do, and that gives us points of difference. So I think overall it's a benefit, and I think within the industry everybody is so friendly and so not bothered about whether you're male or female that I don't see it as a hindrance. Yeah, that is so true. I saw that um, you guys have launched um, an internships for women in the industry kind of programme. Talk to me about that. So we first did this in 2019 and we'd intended to do it every year, but then a certain C word got in the way in between. Um, so we are restarting it again this year. And the idea is that it's so it's it's an opportunity for two women to come to the distillery for a week. And just experience what it is like to work in a distillery. And the idea is to break down perceptions that it is a male industry which certainly still exists in the outside world and there really is no reason for it to be it's not like we're lifting ton bags of malt by hand anymore we have machinery (laughs) to do these things um and what i hope is that obviously it has an impact on those two women but hopefully we will also be able to document through their experience and get that out into the wider world and kind of keep talking about what it's really like to work inside whiskey um and we are lucky to have a team that is i think actually more women than men uh i think yeah if if we can have a small impact on encouraging more women to get into the industry we'd be delighted what is the hardest part of what you do depends what day you ask me (laughs) 
Yeah, I was going to say whether that's kind of on a day-to-day thing, like from day-to-day tasks that you find hardest or just overall in your journey, what's been kind of the hardest part? Well, and a hard part always is any building projects. I really don't like building projects. <laughs> we're doing one at the moment, which is why it's top of mind. So we're just building a new warehouse and bottling building. Um, and the first build project was also really hard. That's partly as a result of our location. We're really remote. And doing any building project in a remote place is not much fun. Um, I mean, I think the other hard part is navigating a business where it's so long term. And, you know, I've now been working on it for nine years. Wow, uh, that's almost and, a decade. <laughs> I know. And we still, hopefully this coming financial year will be our first profitable year, which would be amazing. But that kind of long term financing is hard and sort of stressful as well um and I think the other thing is that running a business is always hard because you're the one at the top and it can be quite lonely um I think that doesn't matter if that's a whiskey distillery or anything else um and I'm lucky to have a really amazing support around me from all different places in my life but that's definitely a challenge if I compare it to my old corporate life where you're always part of a team And how was that kind of going from that old corporate life? Because I guess there were two sides to that. There were, you know, you were in London, you were doing something completely different. And then suddenly you're working on this amazing but massive scale project to kind of bring, like, throw out the whiskey rule book and kind of make whiskey the way that you kind of wanted to make it in the West Coast of Scotland. What was the kind of biggest change, you know, which part was harder and which parts have been the best bits? Um, Well, I would say that it is 99% positive. I think um, working on something that I believe in and that I sort of see the vision for and why we're doing it is amazing. And to create a physical product, because I was a consultant before, so you're kind of only creating ideas at best. Yeah. is amazing and to feel like we're, I'm doing something positive from a sustainability point of view yeah it's all amazing and to create the kind of team that I want around me and we've got such an amazing amazing group of people working at Nignean who actually help me evolve the mission themselves as well so they become kind of an integral part of the journey so um, that is amazing and not to be at the beck and call of clients across the world who want you to fly somewhere at a moment's yeah. notice. <laughs> But yeah, I think it, but the kind of running a small business is really different because it's all, I do, you know, it is kind of all on my shoulders as well. Like we now have a big team and that's amazing, but I feel very responsible for them as well. Yeah, I get that. Um, How do you kind of scale the business? So you kind of, you've done your fundraising, you've finally got to production, you're producing liquid, it's um, old enough to sell as scotch. How do you go about kind of getting the brand out there and scaling that? Because I know you guys are exporting as well already. So we've always had like a, a quite a clear plan of what we want to sell and where and when because, well, partly because we have this have to have this long-term funding in place um, and partly because... The weird thing about whiskey is that what we produced in 2017 is what we could sell in 2020, 2021, and the same ongoing. So we have a knowledge of what stock we have, a knowledge of how we want to age it, and therefore what we want to sell every year. So it's quite clear to us already what that looks like. And then the question is more, where do we sell it to and how do we 
um, how do we get those sales? So we we knew that we wanted to export and we'd started to build relationships in various export markets before we launched the whiskey because we went to trade shows, for example, and showed the young, not yet whiskey spirit. And you start to meet distributors and get a feel for the market. And so we'd identified which markets we wanted to start exporting to. And in the UK, we ummed and ahed about whether we wanted to go for our distributor in this country or build our own sales team. And we decided to build our own sales team. I think it was 50-50 uh, reasons to do that either way. But we decided to take it in-house, as it were. And then you just kind of have to see how it goes and react accordingly. So our export sales have probably done better than we expected. So we're sending more volume there. Um, but that's not, uh, that wasn't always the plan. But I think you just take advantage of what, what's in front of you, basically. Yeah. We're still only exporting to Europe, which is intentional because I'd rather maximise the countries that are closer and minimise that travel or transport carbon footprint towards the end probably early 2023 we'll get beyond Europe and we're just deciding at the moment whether that would be towards the Americas or towards Asia. And I guess then the challenge always with whiskey is if you if things go really well you can't unfortunately turn a tap on to make more you're at the kind of <laughs> behest of what's aging in time. <laughs> Correct exactly. It's a nice so problem to have though. <laughs> it is a nice problem to have but we do also have this weird thing of like right well how much whiskey do you think we'll be selling in six years time and should we start to make a bit more of it now hmm. yeah <laughs> um so it is yeah it's tricky but you can't do any more than make your best guess basically what's next in the immediate future for the brand so this year we well we're about to release our first yeast trial which is very exciting um so we do these three yeast two or three yeast trials a year where we use non whiskey specific yeast to create different flavors in the spirit and we've got various ones in the warehouse but we haven't released any yet so the first will be coming out in april so that is pretty exciting and whose idea was that kind of whose idea was it to have a play around with different yeasts and things i think that it was mine i just scientist vibes. <laughs> it does a bit doesn't it um I drink craft beer and I feel like a lot of craft brewers talk about yeast all the time and fundamentally whiskey is distilled beer. So I couldn't really yeah. understand why. I mean, we use two yeasts anyway, which is pretty unusual in whiskey. Most distillers just use one. And I was like, well, why not look at other yeast? There's not one flavour of whiskey that is the right flavour. People appreciate lots of different flavours. So let's yeah. take some different yeasts and play around with them. So we did it in small buckets to begin with before we scaled because you have to do it basically for two weeks, which is a lot of whiskey so yeah. do it in small buckets taste the wash check it out it doesn't you know kill the other yeasts and so on um and then scale up what we like so it's fun any disasters not yet there have been plenty of disasters <laughs> at the scale of the bucket but none that we have scaled up yet so i have to ask you my final question which i ask everybody who comes onto the podcast and that is what your desert island drinks cabinet would be so you can imagine then the nagnean is free-flowing you have that okay, plenty. great great <laughs> and plenty of soda um Perfect. what else would you not be able to live without uh the other thing i would take is campari and vermouth because our botanical spirit makes an amazing negroni so we haven't talked about your botanical spirit. Tell me a little bit about that because I haven't actually tried that yet. Ah, well, we must send some to you. Um, it is. So we actually released it before the whiskey. I think we released it in 2018. And it was another result of our slightly crazy experiments. We were 
someone came into the distillery and said, oh my God, your new make, which is our unaged spirit, is amazing. Why don't you bottle it? And I thought, well, that's a little bit niche. I'm not sure there's a massive market for that. Um, but at the same time, I happened to go out foraging locally with a for, uh, you know an experienced forager and sort of sat, found what bountiful, amazing, interesting, tasty plants that were growing. And I thought, well, why don't, what if we tried to put these two things together? So we worked with Harriet Watt of the Big Brewing Distilling University in Edinburgh to do loads and loads of experimentation, not necessarily thinking it would result in a product, but just to see what would happen. And yeah, eventually we came out with a botanical spirit and I just thought it was delicious. So we bottled it. Um, Amazing. It was not, so it wasn't in the business plan. We didn't really do it for cash flow because it was had a fairly minor impact in the years. It was important to you know have extra cash flow beyond the whiskey, but I love it as a product. It's super interesting, and it was great just to be able to start getting our word out there in a product form before the whiskey came along. So yeah, yeah, nice. So you're a Negroni drinker. I am. That delicious. story. Um, have you tried Ostara vermouth? So there's a vermouth called Ostara and it's yeah. English hedgerow vermouth and you kind of talking about going foraging for botanicals and things um, reminded me of it, um, founded by a guy called Julian and he takes uh, English wines and turns them into vermouth using kind of botanicals from English hedgerows. Um, so I feel like that combined with your botanical spirit plus Campari could be the perfect. That is it. <laughs> that is it. We've cracked it. <laughs> we have cracked it. I'm glad I will have so many Negronis on my desert island. <laughs> Annabelle, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. It's been, I've been a fan since I tried it. Um, so it's been fantastic to hear a little bit under the hood of uh getting to from kind of that fun initial fundraising to the bottle um and i can't wait to see what you guys do next it's been so lovely to chat to you thank you very much for having me i'll speak to you soon cheers if you'd like to continue the conversation feel free to reach out to me on instagram at rvj drinks and of course if you enjoy the show don't forget to tell all your drinks curious friends about it and leave us a review if you feel like it because it will help other people to find us otherwise i will catch you soon